Just to tie back to the history real quick, I will say that, you know, there is one quote that's often mentioned about Bruce R. McConkie after the, the revelation came out, where he right, was speaking, he to, some, that, yeah, where he was speaking to some well. CES folk, is that right? Right. Do you have right. that quote yeah. in front of you, or should I paraphrase? I don't, but, I, you know, but I, basically what he says is that he spoke with limited light and knowledge at the time. When he wrote that, he spoke with limited light and knowledge. He just didn't understand that, that you know, the, the scriptures are, I mean, that God's work is, is, continu- is continu- continuous and ever-changing, and that and the things he said, you know, uh, you know uh, essentially should, should, should reflect that, 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 whole, um, uh, that whole paradigm. So I, I, so I think, I mean, to Bruce R. McConkie's credit, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give him credit, that at least he had the, the wherewithal to say, to say that, yeah. right? And, and he didn't the, have to. Yeah, and there was... And and just to capstone that, and I don't want you to think that I'm saying that this excuses it or is in any way adequate, but I do, just for the record, I don't want, you know, I want people to make sure that's known. That, And I think even part of the quote said, everything that anyone's ever said on this issue before 1978 is wrong. That's right. So he basically overturns what Brigham Young said, what, what Joseph... It, but, the pro- but, but there is a problem with that, John. Oh, no, I know. I just wanted to get What's that on the, the record. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, and I and I, I'm sure that's important for your listeners uh, to know. But there there is a problem with that. Oh yeah. So let's before you tell us what I want to do. Let's let's loop back now to your story. Take us take us through sort of how you went from a missionary who just started to think hard about these issues. Take us through, you know, um, your employment at BYU and, and when she started thinking about writing the book, etc. And then we'll culminate in your analysis on um, Mormonism and, and what you think needs to be done, etc. Okay, well, well, make sure you keep me on task, okay? But, but before I say that, let me just preface, this, preface it by, by saying this. I want your listeners to understand something, okay? That I have a testimony in the Church. I want them to understand that emphatically, that I believe the Church is true. For me, the Church has made all the difference in the world in my life, okay? Right. Yeah. I absolutely am convinced of the concept of a living prophet, I, I know that I know that that, that is that is a correct uh, um, principle. That's the way in which the Lord wants things to work, and there's no other place I'd rather be. Hmm. That doesn't mean, however, sure that there, that, there, that that the church isn't free from uh, you know problems and right. that problems surface all the time, and that we need to deal with the deal with the problems in a respectful manner, um, and, and in a way that's 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 consistent with the way in which the, the Savior would deal with it. Um, and all, and I don't think that all the time we we you know we we forget those dimensions of the Savior's life, you know, as we sojourn through this life. And so I'll say that because a lot of people say, well, this guy's not a, you know. And members of the church love to demonize. I mean, if you don't agree with the brethren, you're automatically a heretic. Right. Automatically, without right. even before you open your mouth. And you're saying and been, you're saying there's room. I know that I've been constructed that way. There's I'm room sorry? for loyal dissent. You're saying. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, being, you know, what, 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 what's the old saying? Being, uh, uh, you know, being um, a dissenter is patriotic. Right. Is patriotic, and and disagreeing, you know, should be something that's that's acceptable, and that's completely valid within right. any organization. Right. And so, and I think that our church, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, we should hold our church to the same standards. Sure. Um, and I think that you know, I think that for for me. I mean, for the most part, I have I don't have a problem with anything. 
other than this. This is the only issue I have a problem with so, because it affects me personally, affects right. my family, sure. and also affects the future, the future of, of, of black members that I would love to see more black members in the church. Yeah. Okay, so I'm off the subject now. So no, I'm it's good. No, you're, you're totally on subject. So let's, what I do want to do is weave this back into your story because I want to see this through your eyes, so to speak. So, okay. so you had this experience where those two black gentlemen just basically said, you know, please leave my house. Take us from that point, how that affected you, through okay. um, to you becoming a teacher at BYU. Okay. I was embarrassed by it, very embarrassed by it. But I didn't know exactly what to do, John. I didn't know what, what to do. So I started asking questions about it from people who I thought could give me a reasonable answer or, or give me something that I could go with that would help me, to, that would help to assuage my feelings about, you know, this whole issue about black people. Now, I want you to understand something. And you may not understand this, because you're a white guy. You may understand this, but I want you to try to envision what I'm saying here, John. Sure. Imagine reading something that says that you were cursed. Right. Right? You have no worth. Right? You, you are inferior. Before you even step on, the, step on the earth, you already have this, this original sin kind of a um, you know, uh, concept pasted upon your body, which is antithetical to the second article of faith which most people would know that if, if they knew the Articles of Faith. We don't believe in original sin, right. but yet we continually invoke that idea when it comes to black people. So I was very embarrassed by it. And Lamanites, and, and Lamanites too, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, by the way, we, you know, that's, that's a whole other show. Right. About Lamanites. <laughs> um, but the whole idea about black people and about my, my feelings over it I began to throw myself into literature as much as I can get my hands on to. Uh, written by McConkie, Orson Hyde, um, uh, uh, Joseph Helding Smith, um, the, uh, the, and, and I, uh, some of the names uh, skip me, Sterling McMurrin, a whole lot of people, uh, uh, Lester Bush, and Armand Moss's piece, as much as I can get my hands on, tried to help me to understand this because I had tried so much. I want you listeners, listeners to hear me when I say this. I tried to pray about this to receive a witness that what I was doing was right, that what I was teaching people about my own blackness, I'm talking about blackness as a group, a group experience, I just didn't receive a witness. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't feel the Spirit. I couldn't have that, that serenity of, of, and peacefulness that comes when you know things are right. I just didn't get that. Right. I could find no solace in that. Mm -hmm. So I did what I did what, what I did what I usually do in some sometimes in situations, at least back then, I just simply forgot about it. Right. Didn't think any more about it until after I got home. Did you teach any and, other black people and did you ever baptize no, any black no, people? No. But those are the only two black people that I really I really had huh. a conversation with about this issue. Oh. I had a lot of conversations with white people about it, right? But not in a not an actual proselytizing experience that I had with these two black men. Okay. And so, but that was enough to turn. That was enough to get me to think about what I was doing and about what I was saying right. about black people. Sure. Because it, you know, because John, it's almost like it's almost um, self hatred. Sure. I mean, you're teaching this stuff. It's almost self hatred, and so black people who are left to have to endure this stuff, right? You have to have a high degree of self hatred. Now, I said this. I said this earlier in one of the papers that I wrote about this. I said that black people who join the LDS Church, to some extent, have to agree, whether they like it or not, to take on this priesthood issue. 
I mean, that's, that, that, is your, that is a burden that you take on when you join a church. Sure. Because from then on, you're going to have to explain to people why you're a member of the church, right? And you're going to have to constantly have to correct white people, white members of the church. Yeah. Right? Who continue to come, who could continually come to you with, with these just crazy ideas about black folks. Amazing ideas. But at any rate, so that experience got me thinking about the foolishness in this. And why no one, why no one has ever, particularly no one black, has ever said anything about it. I have never heard any black person say anything about this. Sure. And I know there's black people out there in the church, yeah. but no one has ever, at least at that time, no one has ever said anything about it. So I was relying on y'all sure. to teach me about it. And, right. and that's, that was my first mistake. Right, sure. You know, uh, because I know white people can't teach me about what it means to be black. And I wish they would quit trying, quit trying to do that. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, you know, whereas I can teach white people a whole lot about what it means to be white, <laughs> living, in, living, in a, living in a white man's world. Now, how can I do that? Now, and, and, and when I say that, right, w- what I'm really saying, John, is that I can teach white people a lot about what it means to live in a world, right, wherein white people are saturated with privilege mm-hmm. that they don't see. I'm not talking about individual white people. I don't know individual white people. You know, in this in this example I'm giving, but I'm talking about the collective experience of what it means to be white. Right. Right. That white people don't know, don't really understand it about blacks, and and if they do understand it, they understand it through stereotypes and and uh, and um, and uh, and notion, mis, you know, notions of representation that are grossly inaccurate. Right. Right. Because again, it has to do with power and and who has who has power. Even poor white people have power and power in that they have white skin privilege. Sure. Which gives them an ac- access to the things, things that black people have to, have to experience, like driving while black, right? Right. Or as an example, but but nevertheless, that experience in Michigan, it be, it began to 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 to, uh, to um, get the juices flowing. Sure. I, I remember sending a letter up to uh, Elder Benson, uh, President Benson, about the whole priesthood issue. And uh, his uh, secretary sent me a letter back. This is Ezra Taft Benson. So, yeah, Ezra Taft Benson. He's yeah. a cousin of mine, by the way. Oh, is he really? Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> I want something bad. To no, no, no. <laughs> no just kidding, kidding. We're all about honesty. Remember. That's a joke, Zach. I know. Okay. Um, but anyway, I sent a letter to him, and he, his uh, uh, secretary responded back to me. Basically, the letter was like, why haven't we done more to talk about or or undo, you know, the, the myths about black people, you know, about black people being, being cursed. And the secretary said, you know, the church, the church, the, you know, basically they, the, the guy sent me a letter basically saying that the Declaration 2, you know, took care of all of that. Now tell us, did you, right. did you ever run into people who, and this is going to sound strange to you, but I think our listeners, no, no, you know, no. a lot of people tell me, oh, John, it's a dead issue. You know, mm-hmm. we don't believe it anymore. People don't believe it anymore. Tell us an experience or two where it was confirmed to you that even, you know, even in the 90s and, and 2000s, that there are still members who believe the the teachings about less valiancy and, and you know, blacks being inferior. Just so, just, um, to, just to drive home the, the notion that oh, you're trying to make student. now. Which is no, the, my students? Yeah, my students believe that. The students that I teach believe. It. I mean, just just last semester, for instance, I went and uh, guest lectured at the University of Utah, and the professor, uh, name is Wilford Samuels, a really good friend of mine. Wilford was a, a in fact, Wilford was a sort of a, 
if it wasn't because of Wilfred Samuels, I never, I, I don't think I would have been the person I am today in terms of my intellectual interest. Because Wilfred really, he's a professor at the U, really helped me to to push my intellectual acumen uh, in ways that I was I, I never did before. So I really owe a lot to him, and also a guy named Scott Wright, who was another professor at the U. But at any rate, um, a stu- he said there's a student in his class that believes that that the church that that blacks are cursed because of the teachings of the prophets and that he would be very interested to have you come and speak to the classroom about it. And I did. I showed up to the class. This is last semester. So, no, no, I'm sorry, John, I stand corrected. This is this semester. Okay. This very semester, which when I get home, I've got to go and, and finish up that lecture. But at any rate, this guy, at the, end of, in, at the end of my lecture, he comes up to me and says, wow, I've never heard that before. I've never heard all of these things that you're saying about black people. The, I mean, in terms of the counterposition you're giving, because I've always been taught by my family that black people were cursed. This is a young man. He couldn't have been no more than 22, 23 years old. In 2006. In 2006. Right. Right, who has a, who believes this stuff about black people being cursed. And throughout, and throughout your years in the church, were there ever, you know, are there a story or two you can tell us where in a personal relationship or an acquaintance where oh, this yeah. issue sort of really... You know, any any stories that stand out that you oh, can yeah. tell us where you had to actually oh, yeah. confront someone specifically about that belief? Oh, yeah. Let me give you an example. And you really see it, black people see it a lot during when you're, when you're dating, in racially dating. I mean, when you're biracially dating. Oh, my goodness. Y'all, y'all just don't have a, y'all don't appreciate that. Y'all, y'all get, lose y'all's mind. <laughs> I mean, when, when the brothers show up, when the brothers show up to the house, <laughs> the racism just flows. I was, I was at Rick's. And um, this, this, you know, Rick had this thing called Morp. You get Morped. This is a Utah thing. I never heard of it before. <laughs> it's prom spell backwards. It's a girl's choice, right? So I got a couple of Morps, but I got asked by this one particular girl from Wyoming to go to the Morp thing with her. Mm-hmm. She's all excited and stuff, and, and so we were. It's like a day before the Morp was to happen. She calls me and says that she can't go to the Morp with me. I said, Why? She goes, Because her mom and dad don't want her to go to the Morp with me. I said, well, why? And she said, because you're black. Mm. I said, what do I have to do with anything? And see, and, and, and okay, before I finish the story, let me, let me just say this, John. I always knew I was a man of color. I mean, I just I always knew that. I mean, it's, it's obvious, right? I look in the mirror of myself, I see myself as black. Not to mention the fact that I've been constructed as a black man by white society, right? And, and, and the way in which blacks respond to that construction by, by white society. So I always knew that. But I really became aware of that when I joined the church, because mm-hmm. I was always reminded of my blackness. Always. How? People like people saying that you can dance. Oh, you can dance. Or can I touch your hair? Mm. Or um, um, you, know, uh, you know, you're cool. You know, exoticizing me. You know, right. ex- always ex- seeing seeing white people don't do that to each other, but they love to do that to other people, right? I mean, love to do it, and they do it unconsciously. You know, and if they do do it to other white people, it's certainly not today. It certainly doesn't have racist overtones to it, right? Right. So, anyway, so she says, and I said, well, man, I'm, all, I'm ready. I'm ready to go, and I'm dressed, and, you know, I've got my stuff squared away. And she's like, well, if I go with you, my mother and my dad will pull my tuition. I said, they do not want me going out with a black guy. Hmm. And I was like, man, I'm, you know, so, I, so that's, that's the first time I felt bad. Then the second time, is I, did, I was dating a girl down at BYU. 
and I was at home one night. I call. I call, actually called Elder Christopherson about this one. See, the thing is, too, John, is that when this stuff happens, it hurts so deeply mm-hmm. that you don't know who to call. Right. You know, because if, if I call somebody who's non-Mormon and that's black, the first thing I'll say is, leave that racist church alone. Right. Get out of that racist church. <laughs> you know, yeah, they have no sympathy. yeah, they have no sympathy because they say, well, you, you joined it. You joined it. <laughs> and if I call a white person, they love to excuse you know, excuse the racist. What are, but, what, are, um, what, actually, are, what are some excuses you've heard? <clears throat> um, something like this. Um, he's a product of his time. That's one. Right? As if racism only existed during that time and that it's no longer around anymore. Right. Um, he's an old man. Or um, That was then. You know, they're just, they're just being silly. Or, or, or they, or many, many, many white people do this. They love to twist it around and say, "Aren't you being too paranoid?" So when I say to them, "I really feel like I've been discriminated against," they say, "Well, aren't you being too paranoid?" No, you know that that, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. Now, how would a white person know that that didn't happen hmm. when they never experienced discrimination? Certainly not racial discrimination. So how would they know? But you've got to be torn because the the it sounds like. You know, you you've uh, done really well within the society, so to speak, and so on the one hand, you could say that you've been given really good treatment, even sometimes maybe special treatment, and at the same time, you've you've seen hardcore, no. you know, evil racism, you know, staring you in the say face. That. I would say what I would say is this, John. I think that I've learned very well how to wear two hats. Du Bois talks about this. This this idea of double consciousness, right? Uh, being black and then being white. Black people have to do that. Y'all just have to I mean, You're lucky, John. You get up in the morning, you go out, and, you, and you're white. You never, have to, you never have to change or flip-flop or, I hate to use that term, that's the, that's the Republican thing. You never have to change who you are, whether, you do, whether it's happening consciously or unconsciously. You're just John. Being John for you is just normal. Whereas when I'm around white people, I just can't be Darren. In other words, I can't be how I am when I'm with my black friends. Because when I'm with my black friends, my white, my white friends wouldn't understand it. They would be turned off by it. They would, they would say, wow, he's acting too black. Mm-hmm. I put quotation marks around it. He's acting too black. So it's a very, very strategic rope that blacks have to, neg- to navigate, negotiate when associated with white people. True. And that's something that white people don't have to do. Well, I, I, I don't want to draw a parallel too much, but I can say that those of us who are Sunstone or more liberal Mormons, but who are still active in the church, we actually very much do. And it's not based on race, and I don't want to say it's the same thing, but I can say I experience daily and weekly pain in the job here in Logan, Utah, or in my ward, where I have to decide how much authentic I can be about what I know about church history, what I know about church doctrine, how I feel about certain practices and beliefs. I have to be very careful and always painfully conscious of um, of, of how I vocalize that as it relates to the workforce and, and you know when I attend church on Sunday. But having said that, please don't think that I'm in any way saying that that's totally equivalent. But I also don't want you to think the discrimination is only unique to race, and I know you don't think that. But anyway, I just wanted no, to let that know. No, I don't. But, but, but I mean, but you know, with all due respect, John, that's that's a very, very. I mean, you you have the. Cho- I mean, you have a choice to. You know, to 
ignore those circumstances that present that that present that, that you're confronted with because of your quote unquote liberal views, right? You have a choice. I get to wear it, paste it on my body. Yeah, yeah. Every time. I mean, I, I, I mean, just even even doing this podcast, there's going to be somebody's going to email you and say, "I didn't like that guy. Right. Right? He was he was too angry." Yeah. And so, so so when people like me talk passionately about these issues, I'm always the angry black man. I can't win. Right. Right. Either I'm I'm an Uncle Tom or I'm, I'm an angry black man. So just so so having to negotiate the racial line is something that I think that whites just don't appreciate and don't understand. Yeah. And and so and so and I say that not to minimize your own experiences, John, but rather to, to ho- hopefully amplify the reality of what it means to be black, to live to live in a black body, and to have all of these different challenges presented to you, and to be aware of it. I guess that's one of the. I, I guess I was better off when I was unaware of it. Right. And being educated has helped me be more aware of it. So now I'm much more much more likely to see it for what it is when before I was unconscious about most of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so, at any rate, so that, that experience with the young lady was, was one. Another, another time, this is much more recent, this is probably in the, in the late, or middle 90s. I remember this one because it was, this was the most painful one. I was at home in Salt Lake, and I got a phone call from some guy in Colville, Utah. He said that he's so-and-so and that he is so-and-so's dad. And I said, okay. He said, well, we don't want you to. His mom was on the other line, and the mother was on the line. I don't want you dating, my, dating our daughter anymore. I said, well, can't your daughter tell me that personally? Mm-hmm. She goes, no, I'm her father, and, I'll tell, and I'm telling you I don't want you. To. I said, no, I'm not going to stop dating her unless she tells me. Well, you, damn it. He said, damn it. You know, you're going you're gonna to do what I say do. If you don't like it, then take your ass back to Africa. That's what he told me. Mm. Right. He, and, he, and I said, well, if you don't like it, take your ass back to England or Europe, where the hell you came from. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and then he says, you know, and that's, he said, that's, why, that's why we didn't want your people to, be, to belong to the church anyway. And that, was, that was sort of a play on and the priesthood thing, right? Yeah. Now imagine, I don't know if you ever got a phone call like that before, John. Well, actually, you know, I, I, got, I was discriminated against in high school for being Mormon. So I had, okay. I had fathers who literally called me and said, you cannot date my daughter because you're a Mormon. Because right. I grew up in a Baptist John, town. Yeah. John, but I'm not trying to equate. Let me just be clear to my listeners. I, I in I, no I way think... Bro, but listen, you can pretend not to be Mormon though, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, yeah. you don't wear your Mormon on your body. No, no, no. Uh, I'll just be clear. In no way am I thinking that my experience even comes close to yours. Okay. I'm saying that I can start with a tiny sliver to relate somewhat to some right. of the things you okay. might be experiencing. Okay. That's right. all. That's all. Right. You asked me if I've yes, experienced right. something like that. Yes, I've experienced yes. something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you've had some experience with that. I mean, at least you can empathize to some extent about what I'm yes, saying. Yes, but it's right? a sliver of, of what you must and right. others must experience. I totally I mean, acknowledge I mean, that. But, John, that was hurtful, man. Yeah. That was yeah. hurtful. This guy, I mean, I was stressed out. I hung up the phone, and I called Elder Christofferson. Right. And said he wasn't a, he wasn't a uh, he wasn't uh, he he was still in a, uh, he was an area authority then and I just was talking to him hey man you know he was mortified right. absolutely he's like who's this guy's name what's this guy's name <laughs> I said no don't worry about it it's not you know it's okay it's okay I mean you know so I guess I guess that experience plus a whole lot more and and there's so many I can't I mean remember remember it happened so often John that. The big stuff I remember, the little stuff that goes by, slips by consciousness, I don't remember those things. But it's death by a thousand cuts, right? 
Yeah, I mean, and that, that hurt. Yeah. That really hurt. And then, of course, my wife's grandmother, you know, sings, used to sing uh, uh, Little Black Sambo songs to them when they were growing up, you know, Little Black Sambo. Sure. Um, and picking any songs and those kind of things. And, and so, you and know, your wife is, your, your wife is white? She's white, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so she's had to confront her own, her own issues. And I would, and I would say this, and this is where I get in, in, in a lot of trouble, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I, 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 I don't, I just don't care anymore. I'm going to say it. The problem with racism in America and in the church, it's not a black problem. It's a white problem. John, y'all have got to start dealing with it. Right. You've got right. to recognize that it exists, first of all, and quit denying it. And recognizing that racism is something that, that benefits white people. That's probably why we still have it around. Because white people benefit tremendously from, from racism. I mean, in, in, in ways I won't talk about now, it's probably, maybe that's a podcast four or five months or four or five years down the road. But, but uh, we can talk about that, certainly. But, but racism will end only when white people want it to end. Otherwise, it's not going to end. So when, when church leaders say, you know what, enough. If our black, if our black members of the church are, are concerned and upset about this, then we ought to act on it. We ought to do something about it, right? But that's not, been, that's not, that's not how it's been. Right. I mean, the way it's been is that, well, if some, if some people say something about this, we're going to discipline them. We're going to silence them. We're going to cut them off, right? We're going to fire them or let them go or we're going to you know, decredit them or devalue them or just ignore them. So, you know, bef- our- okay. so before, before you, before we talk about your dismissal, let's talk about you. So you had some of these bad experiences, but you also, you know, came back to Utah after your mission and pursued your bachelor's degree and then graduate school. Tell us about, you know, the parallel life you're living of, on the one hand, having some less than ideal and sometimes very painful experiences, but also, you know, you becoming educated uh, at a higher institution and even becoming a teacher. Talk us through that, and then we'll talk about um, how it culminates. Well, here, here's, here's, here's the deal. Um, I was uh, – let me just take you back to East, Mich- East Lansing really quick, okay? Because I remember praying to the Lord, like missionaries are supposed to do, hope you're listening out there, about – being blessed with knowledge. I didn't want a baptisms. I didn't want. I didn't, I didn't want to baptize people, right? I wanted knowledge. I figured that if the Lord blessed me with knowledge, I would have the tools to be able to bring people into the gospel, right? I prayed earnestly for that, okay? And I and I think that the Lord has blessed me with that. So, I, when I got back to Rick's, I, I indicated as I indicated earlier, I did well. And then we had some recruiters up there from the University of Utah. I, I, I was tired of church schools then. Then I decided to go to the University of Utah, and I did, you know, went there, and and uh, and uh, and then my, around my senior year, I met a professor. Uh, I mentioned his name earlier, Scott Wright, uh, and Scott. I was talking to Scott about this this uh, working at East High School there in Salt Lake, up on 13th East there in Salt Lake, and about how many wannabe gang kids were up there and how crazy it was mm-hmm. up there. And Scott was like, it is? And so I, I basically went through the hallway. This is probably illegal, but I didn't get in trouble, luckily. And I was filming, you know, just the, just the general events at, at East, and I took it and showed it to Scott. And Scott was absolutely mortified. He was like, wow, I can't. I'm sending my boy because his kids were getting ready to go to high school. I'm sending my boys over there. So he said to me, Darren, why don't you teach a class on gangs? Hmm. That would be a great class. Teach a class on gangs. 
And I was like, well, I'm, I'm not even finished my bachelor's degree yet. I mean, I'm, I was almost done. I was, I was finishing in the spring. And and uh, and Scott and Scott wanted wanted to teach. This was in the this was in the fall. And Scott wanted me to teach the class in the spring. And I said, Well, I can't teach it. I don't have a PhD. He says, Well, you don't have to. I'll I'll set everything up, and you and I can co-teach the class. Hmm. I said, Really? He says, Yeah. So I spent the rest of the semester preparing for the class. I read a ton of stuff on it, and I had no clue about how to teach college or. No, I mean, this was an opportunity of a lifetime to sure. teach. And so, sure enough, spring semester came along, and Scott and I taught the class. Mm. And it was a smash hit. We had like 40 people in that class that semester. Mm. And then I, I knew a guy down at BYU. I, he's an African-American gentleman. He, he worked in student services. His name was Sean McAlderman. And Sean called me one day and said, Darren, um, you know, there's a lady who's, teach, who, who's teaching a class called the African-American Experience, you know, History of African-Americans in the Honors Department, and they want to keep the class going. She's moving. You know, would you would you be consider coming to teach the class? And I was like, I don't have a bachelor's degree. I don't even have a, you know, I'm not a master's. Or he says, I don't think that matters, and that's that that's a problem to me that that that, that didn't matter. Mm-hmm. That's a problem because mm-hmm. it, it demonstrates that anybody can teach that class. Mm-hmm. Not anybody can teach that class. Right. So anyway, to make a lot, it, but it all worked out good in the end. But make, anyway, so I go down there to BYU and I interview with these people down at the honors department. What year is this about? This is around. Ninety-five. Okay. 90, no, ninety. Yeah, ninety-five. Okay. That's when I started. I've been at B, I've been teaching BYU for ten years. Okay. So ten years back, what years would that be? No. Yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah, about 95, right. Yeah. Ninety-five, ninety-six. Anyway, so I go down there and, and meet with the dean of the honors department. The excuse me, the chair. Forgot his name. Uh, this guy was a well-known botanist. Uh, really well-known. Botanist. Rushforth. So Sam Rushforth. No, not Sam. Um. This was another guy. Okay. I'm thinking of James Faulkner's. He he replaced. He left from James Faulkner. But anyway, so I go and teach. I go down there and teach. You know, I go down there and get and they hire me hmm. to teach the class. And this was in the spring of ninety of ninety five, I believe. So I, in the fall of ninety five, I started teaching this class at BYU hmm. um, on the African American experience. I taught it once a semester, and uh, I did that for like two years straight, and then. Um, uh, the dean, uh, James Faulkner, uh, who was the chair then. And see, this is how awesome. See, and the thing is, is as hurtful as this stuff is with the priestess stuff, I love my church. Right. And I love the people in my church, mm-hmm. despite how ignorant they, they can be at times. Right. You know why? Because they have, they, some of them have made it possible for me to have some extraordinary opportunities, mm-hmm. things that I never would have thought about. And things I never would have thought I could do, and so I'll forever be grateful for that. And I think that's the Lord working through these individuals. Sure. So I don't want—I don't want to take anything away from that, because right. I know which side my bread is buttered on. Right. It's buttered straight up <laughs> toward the heavens, and I know the Lord has touched people, people's lives to influence me in ways that are just tr- profound. So James Faulkner sits me down and says, "Darren, have you ever thought about going to graduate school?" You know, and at the same time that James said that, I had met Wilfred Samuels. I've always taught aerobics. I've been an aerobics instructor for years. Mm-hmm. And so I was teaching aerobics down at, in Salt Lake, and I met this black guy named Wilfred Samuels. And Samuels knew I was LDS, but he told me I was always stuck up because I would never talk to him. <laughs> he was probably right. I was probably an uppity Negro and didn't say anything to him because I thought I was better than him. And eventually we started talking. And so, and I knew Wilfred, I, I briefly knew Wilfred, and I knew that he had taught a class on black history or the black experience at the U. 
And so I immediately called him or got a hold of him and said, Wilfred, I'm, I've been asked to this class. I need help. You know, I don't have any idea how to teach this. So Wilfred gave me a whole bunch of stuff to read. Mm-hmm. So I read it, and then Wilfred came down several times and lectured for me down in B- at BYU when I was teaching this class. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my early experiences of teaching I owe to Wilfred and, and Scott. That's what I said. They're key influential people. And they're both non-Mormon. I want to add that, too. Oh. So, so going back to James Faulkner, James said, have you, have you ever thought about doing a master's degree? And at that time, I had applied to, I, was, I, had, I had gone to PA school. I went to graduate in went to PA school, physician assistant school. And then James said, I said, well, I don't think I can get in. You know, I don't think nobody would want, want me in. He said, well, let me make a couple of phone calls. So he called over to the education department. I went and met with um, the chair in the ed leadership program there. And uh, I ended up going to BYU. Got a master's degree out of the BYU in 2000, finished in 2000 in, in uh, educational leadership. Hmm. And, uh, and loved it. Absolutely loved it. I mean, uh, faculty members there were, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, by name Scott Farron, Cliff Mays, um, uh, Cardell Jacobson, uh, and several others there in the in the call. I mean, just loved it. And then they came. And then the dean, the dean in the College of Education department. This is how it always works. The dean in the College of Education department, not the not the current dean now, but the, but his uh, his. Um, uh, uh, the previous dean calls me into his office and says, Darren, have you ever thought about doing, doing a PhD? <laughs> I'm like, no, never thought about doing a PhD. He says, well, you should do it. You'd be great mm-hmm. at it and, you know, and, and whatever I can do to help you. So his encouragement, and, and he even gave me some money. He said, I'm going I'm to put some money aside for you, you know, just, just special funds in case you decide to do a PhD. It'll be here for you. Mm. Can you believe that? And, he chose, the, and he chose the you. Yeah, because 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 I had gotten I'd gotten advice from Scott and Cliff that if I went to BYU I wouldn't be able to teach BYU. Right. It's called institutional incest. I was wondering if that was why you went to the U. Yes. So you could go back to BYU. Yeah, but 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 to tell you the truth, the program at BYU probably wasn't as good as the U's program. Mm -hmm. And so I I probably could have went to a couple of other places, but I chose to stay here because I had a family, I had a house, and you know just. Everything. So I went to the U, and, and, and sure enough, the dean was true to his word. So I kept teaching at BYU, and then and then at the, in the honors program, and then and then the honors program got a new dean, a new chair, and then and they quit they quit having that class. They just said we don't want to do the class anymore. Hmm. So by then, I don't know why they didn't want to do the class anymore, but they just quit doing it. But by then, I had already had a couple of other teaching jobs. I had one in the multicultural law student. I taught multiculturalism in the, in the education department, and then I had started teaching in the sociology department. Hmm. And found my love in sociology, and so been doing it. I've been doing it ever since, hmm. uh, and still making com- occasionally making comments about about the church and about blacks and the priesthood, but never having any problems until the, until Black and Mormon came out. Once the book came out, tell us about that book and how you came to write it. Well, Black and Mormon came out in two thousand four, and I the conception of Black and Mormon took place uh, September twelfth, two thousand one. You know, you know what day that is. Uh, the day after September 11th, 2001? Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so, of course, September 11th was a sobering time for a lot of Americans, if you remember that day. Sure. And I just, I just, it really caused me to think a lot about my own ex- existence, but really about the pain and suffering that, that we flipped upon each other, as, uh, you know, as, as men and women. The things that we do to each other, they're just awful. Mm-hmm. And so I started thinking about this priesthood issue, and so I, I decided to call, I, I, this is, to- this is, 
true, true story, John. Newell Bringhurst, and mm-hmm. many people out there who may not know Newell, but Newell is very well published in Mormon studies. I mean, I mean, I owe a lot of my scholarship to Newell. Sure. His, his example to me has been tremendous. So I tracked Newell Bringhurst down on the Internet, and I called him, this cold called him, and said, Hi, I'm Darren Smith. You don't know me, but I know you. I've read your work. I want to do a book about the priesthood issue and about, you know, this experience and how what it's meant to me and blah, blah, blah. And he was all over it. He says, yeah, I'll do it. So Neil and I became really good friends. And that was five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then we collaborated on this project, which got, in 2001, got published in 2004. People would take a long, your listeners just say, you know, it takes a long time to publish a book. It's sure. not an easy process. Who, who published um, it? So anyway, who, who published it? We did, we did, I'm, I'm sorry, John, I don't mean to cut you off. No, who published it? Um, University of Illinois Press okay. did it. So we wrote, we got this book together, put it together, compiled it, and then I put a piece in there about whiteness in the church, and that was the one that really got people's eyeballs popping. Those that read it, um, some of the things I said about the church and the whiteness of the church, and which I don't, I don't. I mean, it is. It's a white church. Come on. <laughs> why is it? Why is that so strange? It is a white church. Give me a break. It's not a black church. It's not a Latino church. It's not a Pacific Islander church. White people run it. The leadership is predominantly white. I mean, come on. I'm not, I'm not lying when I say that. But at any rate, um, so, um, but I never said anything about the priesthood issue at BYU. Mm-hmm. I never taught that issue at BYU because most of my material was very content-specific. Content and so that never came up. And when the book came out, some students asked me about it, and I told them about it, but that was about it. Okay, wait. So in all those years of teaching at BYU, those, what, five years or six years? It was ten years. You, yeah, you ten didn't, years. You didn't address the blacks and the priesthood issue no, on campus? No. Unbelievable. How in the never world? Never came up. How in the world is that possible? John, it never, it just never came up. I mean, I never found, I mean, I mean, I may have had some side discussions about it with, with people here and there, but I never taught it, openly taught about it on campus. Because your did. classes were more about racism yeah, in I mean, America. I mean, right, race and ethnicity, or multicultural education, or, or African-American experience, or the history of slavery. I never really taught about that specific issue. But you never, you had, you never had a student... And I got fired for it. Wait, so you never, you never had a, a BYU student raise their hand in class and say, I know this is a bit off topic, but but what are your perspectives on the priesthood ban? Not that I can remember, John. Huh. Wow. Not that I can remember. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And if I did have and if I did have those conversations as I indicated before, it was probably after class or a sidebar here and there. Nothing ever no, no, nothing like that ever really came up. Hmm. Okay. And that's I mean, how that's and that's how you I mean maybe looking back now, that's why you were sponsored so strongly and had so much support is because you stayed away from the to the troublesome topics maybe right right until black and mormon came out okay and did and you the, did you worry at the time did you feel did you say you know i've been doing this 10 years it's time for me to get real so i'm going to do this book and, yeah. and, and i could get in yeah. trouble but i'm gonna do it anyway yeah. that's right that's right yes all along in 2004 well in 2004 when black and mormon came out i, I just decided i wasn't going to be afraid anymore I mean, this needed, this, I mean, this is my faith, too. This is my church, too. And I'm not going to be intimidated. I'm not going to be bullied. I'm going to say what I need to say. So the book was sort of a breakout moment for you to say yeah, it's, it time, it's time to open yeah. this can of worms. That's right. Yes. Okay. Okay. 
I've been opening it up ever since, and that's and it cost me my, uh, you know, affiliation. Well, well, and, you know, it's, it's, John, it's, it saddens me too, and the reason that it saddens me because I, I actually quite like BYU to tell you the truth. But secondly, they need to have faculty of color on that campus. They need faculty of color who know their topic. They need staff of color. They need a presence. Right. I mean, BYU is the whitest school in the nation. It's got to be. If not the one, it's certainly on the top ten. Right. No faculty of color. No, they don't even deal with race hardly at all. So there weren't many black uh, faculty that you knew no, of. No, no. I mean, right now there's there there was me. I was. I mean, and again, I wasn't even a full timer. I was an adjunct guy. Right. So, and I was the guy who came in and did the, who did the special work. But I never, they, they, you know, without the PhD, I could never get hired there anyway. So you but didn't know. You was, didn't know. Was, you weren't aware of one full time black faculty member of BYU. Yes, I was getting ready to say. Uh, Marguerite Dreesen is a law professor at BYU. She's a, she's a, but she's in the law school, and she retired. I mean, she actually re- resigned. Okay. So she'll be finished in April. Okay. Because she didn't get tenure. There's a whole nasty story about Marguerite and how they treated her. But anyway, she couldn't stand anymore, so she re- she resigned. Okay. So she's done. So, so there's t- no more blacks there teaching okay. there. That you were. Okay. So so tell us tell us what the what the immediate aftermath was of the book. Was there rumbling? Was there nothing? Okay. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So not no one, one thing. No one called you in and said, "Hey, why'd no you do one this?" Said a word to me. Huh. Not one word. It's only the first time I heard anything about this is in is in the Christmas of two thousand five. Mm-hmm. Is when I got that email from uh, uh, Richard Williams, who was the who was the uh, uh, academic vice president for faculty at BYU, and he says that he said that the uh, that he had heard me on a couple of interviews and that the brethren were upset and I said what brethren he couldn't tell me what brethren okay what um, what interviews did you I just wanted to real quickly I want to sort of lay the <laughs> record for what I want to lay the record for what you did um, after the book was published that led up to that just so that we can well, maybe try and guess what might sure. have been in their minds so what did you do press wise or internet wise or public speaking wise to supplement the book Everything, everything that I've done, John, um, it's all on my website, www.darrensmith.com. Okay. That's D-A-R-R-O-N. Okay. So I kept a record, a running record of everything that I've done um, in terms of press interviews. I've done, you know, obviously Tribune, Deseret News, KUT, KUTV did a big story on this. I did tons of stuff down in Arizona. Um, I did a, a TV show in Arizona called uh, Good Day Arizona. Did that show, several newspaper articles, all over the country, in uh, the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, uh, so you went on a press tour. Yeah. And is this pro- was this promoting your book, or what? Well, I mean, people, once the book came out, and once the church began to make a greater effort into inner-city communities, I started getting calls like crazy. Huh. Reviews from uh, reporters wanting to know my side of the story on this issue, and so I sort of became, you know, uh, an expert on it. And, and, and I, I would, you know, I... You know, uh, without being angrandizing, you know, um, I do know this topic very well, and it's actually a dissertation topic for me. So this is this is this is my area mm-hmm. of focus. This is my area of study. Sure, is racial attitudes and the way in which they impact upon people's lives. And so, yeah. So out of out of nowhere, I started getting phone calls mm. from every, every, virtually everybody. And what would did you have a, a few common messages or themes that you yeah. started? Tell us what those yeah. are. Tell us what those were. Well, those the, the big one was what I indicated to you earlier, John, is that the priesthood, the, the, the continuation of the folklore in the earliest church harms black people. 
it creates a feeling that blacks are inferior because blacks have to bear the burden of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. They have no choice. Okay, that's the first thing. Secondly, is that the continuation of the, of the folklore in Mormonism harms white people because it creates in them a sense of inferior, a, a superiority, that they're better than. Whether, whether they admit that consciously or not, and I would say that most things that we understand happen subconsciously, right? And so, this is, and so the church has a responsibility to assuage black people in that they don't have to bear the burdens, right, right. for right. the church's history. And it's unfair to put blacks in that situation. And also, thirdly, it harms the missionary effort for the church. It mm -hmm. flat out harms it. What, what I mean, harms it? What harms it? The, the, the folklore, the continuation of the priesthood folklore harms the church's efforts at proselytizing amongst blacks, particularly African Americans, and bringing, in, bringing them into the church. So does your, let's, say, let's say your average inner city black person in Philadelphia or New York, you know, do they actually know the history, or do they just know that them Mormons are, you know, are racist? You I know? think, I, I mean, a lot of them do know. I mean, they, you can't help but know it. When you join, you start hearing all, all about it. When you join, but what about before yeah. you even join? Some people hear it before they join. Uh -huh. Some hear it, don't hear it after. Some, some hear it after they join. And then the third thing that's problematic, I think, for a lot of blacks, is that the worship services are so different. I mean, black people come out of a black church tradition, right, a Baptist um, a much more oral tradition of worship where you worship with your mind, body, and soul. Mm -hmm. It's not this sort of disciplining of the body, folding the arms, being quiet in church. That's not, black folks who, who, who grew up in a black faith are not used to that. I mean, they're just not. And they, they, can, they, they have a tough time with that. So that, the, the whole way in which we worship, the way in which we sing our hymns, all of that stuff is so different that a lot of blacks, even when they do join, I would say a lot of them leave, don't, don't stick around. You can have a strong testimony to stay a member of the church, a really strong testimony. Mm -hmm. It's got to be bulletproof. Right. But so why would you want to stay a member? This is kind of a rhetorical question I'm asking myself. When you've got racism to contend with, and you've got a, and you, you worship with white folks who don't understand you, then, then you have a, a service that's so different from the services that you've experienced in the past, those are three recipes for failure. Right. I mean, a lot, I mean that's, why you, that's why when blacks do join the church, John, they typically are upper-middle-class blacks who are used to being in highly integrated areas like white, with, with whites, right? These blacks are very comfortable around white people. These are blacks who live in the suburbs. They typically understand white people are used to being around white people. So that's why the church, when you see blacks, who join the church? They typically fit that profile. And, and isn't isn't the church making inroads in the inner city though, or not? And, and yeah, I, I would say in some communities, yeah. And I think not so much among African Americans, but maybe among Haitians, maybe amongst people who from the Caribbean islands. Those communities, absolutely. But if but you went to Detroit, if you went to Detroit or Philadelphia or Harlem or whatever, you would. I think you would see a high influx of, of uh, people from the Caribbean islands. Immigrants. Yeah. Not, not um, yeah. African Americans. Yeah. Not, not native-born African Americans, black folks. But I think people who are first generation, even second generation. And immigrants. so, and so, you started conveying these three or four major points, you know, yeah. on TV, newspapers, right. magazines. Yes. Yes. Huh. Okay. That those those three, those three uh, statements that I've made to you earlier. Those are my. That's that's my rallying cry. And did you have a call to action or a request that you ever left with people? Oh, yeah. What was it? Oh, yeah. I've, tried, 
I, I, I really, really encouraged MESJ, Mormons for Equality and Social Justice, to, to help me write a letter, generate a letter, and send a letter to the brethren. Um, uh, and um, and uh, letter basically saying that you know we need to undo this. We need to apologize or make a public statement about this issue because it's it's harming folks. People are harmed by this, and now, we now, have a responsibility. Let me give you a softball to to knock out of the park. I I've sure. actually talked to to members who have said, you know what, we're past it now. We we've yeah. we we made the 1978 revelation. Um, you, you can quote several general conference talks, even one last uh, October that I taught from, where racism is is openly and publicly denounced. We you know you know the the black guy in the Mormon Tabernacle Choir is probably the most uh, the most featured singer of all of them. When you when you watch general conference, you know in you know those little TV shows they show in between the two sessions. That's all about Africa, and the, and the inroads we're making in Africa. We're building temples there. You know what what would you say to a Mormon who would say, "Hey, man, we've done it. We've we've moved beyond it. We've moved past it, and and now we're embracing black people, and and we're building a lot. We're we're orienting a lot of our future growth towards towards blacks. You know why isn't that good enough?" There's the softball. Now hit it well, out of the park. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to hit it out of the park now. I, I think the issue is this, John. First of all, Africa is not African-Americans, okay? Africa is a different continent with different people, different, a whole different social and cultural history. And I, and I would even say that even Africans who convert to the church, I would, I would go out, I, I'll say this, okay? Now, if the listeners get mad at me, I want to apologize to y'all right up front. <laughs> I'll say that. But uh, I'm, not so, I'm not entirely convinced that all of the converts in Africa are necessarily because the church is true, but it could be the fact that Africa, that the church is a white church, and it and it provides some Africans with a way out of Africa, mm-hmm. a way a doorway out of hunger, a doorway out of out of uh, poverty, or, or may, and you know maybe a better life. So it could be that some of the converts could be based. I'm I'm speculating here uh, with that because I don't know for a fact, but I would say that uh, some of those conversions certainly are that way. The other thing is that. Um, the church, the church has made some inroads, just without a question. Um, um, but those people who are saying that that it's in the past, I would argue, are not the recipients of the continual ideas that are spewed by members that blacks are cursed. In other words, they're, 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 these people are not hearing the kinds of the kinds of discussions that I'm hearing about blacks. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the place of blacks in the church. They don't hear that. They're not privy to that. So for them, things are better because they never hear it. Right. Or certainly don't hear it to the degree they heard, they heard it perhaps 10 years ago or 23 years ago whenever the priesthood ban was lifted in 78. So for them, it, because they don't hear it, it doesn't exist. But for me, who has to live it every day, I hear it all the time in some shape, form, or fashion. That's a secondly. Um, just because I don't see racism doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Right. Does exist, and also the way in which racism gets discussed in the lay public is completely misinterpreted and misappropriated. And let me let me clarify. First of all, the way in which people talk about racism, John, they're thinking that racism is a verb, right? I go out, I call you a nigger, or I put a cross in your yard, or I put, I call you a spick. I'm a racist, right? So that's typically the way that we talk about racism. Racism is an action verb. If I'm doing something to you, I'm racist, right? 
But I'm not talking about that kind of racism. I'm talking about, uh, first of all, I wouldn't even say that's racism per se. I'm talking about systemic racism in, in which society as we know it is ran, governed, decided, and, and uh, by whites to benefit whites. It's structural. It's systemic. Right? White people get to decide right, who is included and who's excluded. And you can put a race, you can you can put a race, a racial tint to that. You can put a sexuality tint to that, right? It's, it's heterosexuals who's determining, right, what normal sexuality should look like. Mm-hmm. And it certainly ain't homosexuals, right? I mean, they don't get, they don't become a part of that discussion. They really don't. And you can say that yeah, a couple of states have allowed, you know, same-sex marriages now, but that doesn't mean the nation as a whole has accepted homosexuality. I mean, you know, a prima facie. This just doesn't. This didn't happen. So it's people who are in power who get to control the discourse and the access, right, to things that other people take for granted. And so when I'm talking about racism, I'm talking about privilege. Mm-hmm. Who has privilege? Who who's able to benefit from that privilege based on skin color or based based on skin hue? And blacks have not had that. They've not had that uh, you know that kind of uh, experience here in America they haven't and so in the, in our church we certainly I mean I mean what would it hurt John what would it hurt for church leaders to say I want to take this Bruce R. McConkie statement one step further brothers and sisters and say that whatever was said about blacks about our black brothers and sisters as being cursed or less than is absolute foolishness. And if you're teaching it, you're out of step. And if, we've, and if, and if members have ever taught it and, if, and are teaching it now, we want to urge you to stop. And whatever's been said in the past, I'll go one step further than what Elder McConkie said, we want to ask for, for, for forgiveness. Because we, cause that was wrong. It was wrong, and it was inconsistent with, with, uh, with, with the Savior. What would that hurt? What would that hurt? It may open the floodgates for for so many converts, we wouldn't know what to do with them all. Mm-hmm. It would certainly help black people to feel a hell of a lot better uh, about our situation than we than what I think a lot of blacks currently feel. And, and, uh, of course, a lot of blacks disagree with me. They they, they say oh, everything's fine and everything's fine. And I would say I would say to those blacks, they have certainly internalized these these discourses and I think for for strategic reasons. I mean it's hard confronting this stuff. It's easier just to join y'all rather than fight against you. Right. Easy. If had I kept my damn mouth shut at BYU, I'd still be there right now. Right. Wouldn't wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't have a problem. But also wouldn't feel good about myself because I think that the Lord has called me, personally called me. I, I now, I'm saying this for Darren Smith, not for the church, has called me to do this job, to mm-hmm. do this work. Right. And, if I, I feel, and I feel that if I don't do it, I'm going to be held accountable for it. So, and so, so I'm going to do it as long as the Lord sustains me in, in this process. And as long as I continue to meet people like you, John, who are allies along the way to help further this effort, because I can't do it alone. I mean, I need white people to do it with me or to do it to get out there and teach other white people about how nonsensical this stuff is. 
because to tell you the truth, white people tend to believe other white people before they believe a person of color. Right. Because, you know, they see me as being too political.